Well, I think we'll get rolling here if it's all right. Even if it isn't all right, we're going to get rolling. So welcome everybody here in the room as well as online there. Good to see all of you. Joel set an ambitious goal for me. He declared twice that we are going to finish Genesis today. So I think he's probably right, but uh, he set the goal. So no questions, no bunny trails. We're going straight through. I'm, I'm just kidding. If you have questions, please. In chapter 47, which is where we pick up verse 13 of the chapter. Now, I think all of you, well, Bill wasn't, but all of you know the context. Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. Uh, they have been restored. Jacob has been brought down from Canaan, from Beersheba, where he lived in Hebron, then down to Egypt. They're in Goshen, the west side of the east side, excuse me, of the Nile Delta. Again, this will be the last time I talk about that. If you're interested in that geography, it's on page 26 of the map, but they're in that lush, eastern, huge delta of the Nile. <clears throat> now, what verse 13 through uh, really uh, 26, and then 48 is, I do, uh, 48 uh, is <clears throat> where Joseph has uh, his two sons blessed by Jacob. What this does, it records how Joseph organized Egypt for the famine. Remember his dream, which he told the Pharaoh, and he became the administrator of this. This is a seven-year famine. Uh, they still have almost five years left of the famine. So this text tells us how shrewd of an administrator Joseph was, and how in doing this, he both enriched the house of Pharaoh, but also uh, protected the people's lives, and they recognized that from famine. Now, there was no food, I'm in verse 13, in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt, land of Canaan, languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt, land of Canaan, in exchange for the grain that they had brought. They had bought, remember, that was one of the things Jacob had sent his sons to do. <clears throat> and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt, land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. Joseph answered, Give me your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, flocks, the herds, the donkeys. Spied them with food in exchange for the livestock that year. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is spent. The herds of our livestock are the Lord's, my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, and that land may not become desolate. So Joseph borrowed the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. Let me stop there for just a minute. This, you see, there's three things that happen, three steps here. Pharaoh is not just giving the food. I mean, you're talking about a very large population. See, he's doing it. They buy it. Okay, all the money basically has been expended. Then their livestock. Then the third element, which we just read, they enter into a debt slave relationship in the ancient world as a matter of fact really up until the 19th century you you are in debt uh for whatever reasons or maybe whatever the circumstances might be in debt what you do is you enter into what we may we would call like an indentured servitude relationship and so what they're doing is they're surrendering their land to pharaoh this is not necessarily permanent but they're surrendering all their land for Pharaoh, and they become debt slaves and indentured servants. They will still work the land. He'll provide the food, but Pharaoh owns it. And so, again, in, this isn't just handing out food. This is giving the food in exchange for money, livestock, and now land. The consequence of this is Pharaoh is going to become extremely wealthy. <laughs> but we'll talk about that here in just another a moment. Verse 21 as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had free allowance from Pharaoh and lived in that allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell the land. Now, he's not talking here about priests associated with the Jews. He's talking about the priests of the religion of, of, of Egypt. That's what he's talking about. And Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, here's the seed for you. You sow the land. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, four-fifths shall be your own. 
So again, this is like a sharecropping, indentured servitude type of relationship. Pharaoh owns the land, and in exchange for that, one-fifth of the harvest, which could be significant when you think of it, all of Egypt <laughs> goes to the Pharaoh, but four-fifths is their own. They see to the field, food for yourselves, your household, food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Jobus made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and stands to this day that Pharaoh shall have the fifth. The land of the priests alone have become, have become Pharaoh's. So, I mean, this illustrates to you, I think that's the only reason it's in the text. It illustrates to you how organized and quite shrewd Joseph was in administering this famine crisis in Egypt. I, I hesitate to use modern terms, but I'll use it nonetheless. He doesn't set up a welfare system. He sets up a system where the people, in order to get food to sustain their life, they, they give up certain things, presumably temporarily, or at least for a, a, a period of time. This does not last for the entire history of Egypt. We're in what is called the Middle Kingdom in Egypt's history. It's a long history. As you move into the New Kingdom, uh, that's going to change, but that's a whole other story. That will be the story of the Exodus and all of the things that follow in the Old Testament. Then verse, uh, <coughs> excuse me, then verse 27. Thus Israel centered, now we're back to the focus on the Jews. And Israel, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions of it, were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147. And so again, we're back now focusing on the covenant people. And when the time drew near that Israel might die, remember, Israel is the covenant name of Jacob, from Genesis 32. He called his son Joseph and said, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise me to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. Why would Jacob give that command to his son Joseph? Okay, that was not a rhetorical question. And he was given Canaan. Given Canaan, he needed to go back. That's right. He wants to be buried in the promised land. He doesn't want to be buried in Egypt. The promise that God made to him and his father, Isaac, and his grandfather, Abraham, was the promised land. Canaan, not Egypt. And the reason that's important is it again gives you the reminder these individuals believed God's promise. That part of the Abrahamic covenant, land, Seed and blessing, land, Genesis 12, 7. God promised that. In Genesis 15, 17, God defines the expanse of that land that will be theirs. And so I just, I, I'm really glad the Bible records this. Jacob is near the end of his life. He, about, he, wants, he wants his son to promise him something. Don't bury me here. But let me lie with my father. Carry me out of Egypt. Bury me in the burning place. He answered, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. And he swore to him. This Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed, some translations, the head of his staff. That is an act of worship. That's an act of reverence before God. That's what Jacob is doing. And I thought I'd comment. It says, put your hand on my thigh. It's like this. This was an ancient Near Eastern, I, it's crazy, but it's an ancient Near Eastern method of taking an oath. And it, there are some reasons why they think that was, which I don't think needs to be developed. But that's what he was talking about. So this is really important, Jacob. And I love this because it affirms he believed the promise of God. All right, now we have a question. We read uh, about two chapters earlier that Joseph had two sons in Egypt. His wife was an Egyptian. He has two sons. He gives them Hebrew names, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, as it stands at this point, now listen very carefully, I'm saying this. They are outside the covenant promise. They were born in Egypt. Their mother is an Egyptian. Joseph is sensitive to this. So what Joseph wants to do is have his father, Jacob, Israel, formally adopt his two boys and bless his two boys. And let me give you the bottom line of what's going to happen here. Reuben, again, you have to go way back in our study, but Reuben, who was the firstborn of Jacob, 
born to Leah. He betrayed his dad and lost the rights of being firstborn. What's going to happen is Joseph's two boys are going to inherit the position of firstborn. And when we, you have to see this at the end of the book of Joshua, when the land grants are dispensed to the 12 tribes of Israel after the conquest of Canaan, the two largest grand land grants go to the firstborn, Ephraim and Manasseh. So this is a really important chapter because it explains to us why they inherit the role of firstborn, which Reuben had lost due to his chicanery. And now Ephraim and Manasseh, at this point still young boys, will inherit that and become, the, will receive, I should say, the blessing of the firstborn. So this is a really important chapter. And when you look at the map of the land grants that are given after the conquest, Ephraim is to the north of Judah, and Manasseh is to the north of that, and they're both on the east side and the west side of the river. Huge parts of the land grants given to the tribe. That's why this is an important chapter. Does it make sense? Just to clarify, yeah, please. the rights of the firstborn are going from Jacob, Jacob's firstborn son mm-hmm. to actually Jacob's grandsons. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He, that's this right. is really outside the norm. Maybe a secondborn would be typical, but not to a grandson. Well, yes, okay. and that's and that's correct. And this is what Joseph, this is what Joseph in, in effect, requests of. His, okay. because And there's another... Um, there's another issue that comes in here that I'm going to deal with right now. But what you just said is accurate. That's okay. exactly right. Joseph was told, Behold, your father's ill. I'm in chapter 48 now. So he took his him, his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. So it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph, hang on to you. And this was some strength that sat up in bed. Jacob said, God Almighty, that it's a really important title of God, El Shaddai. We've seen it several times in our study of, of, of Genesis appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I'll make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a company of peoples and will give you the land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Now, what he just reviewed was the Abrahamic covenant. And so Jacob believes that. His whole life is anchored on that. Verse 5, Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. As Reuben and Simeon are, what did Joseph, excuse me, what did Jacob just do? Adopted these two boys into the family. They're born in Egypt. Their mother's an Egyptian. He is now adopting them into the clan, which is really important. This is what Joseph wanted him to do. And the children you fathered after them shall be yours. Any more kids you have, they're not going to be in the in the covenant line, but these two will be. They shall be called by the name of the brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And if you ever go to, to Israel and you go over to Bethlehem, which is now under Palestinian control, you enter the security gate, Rachel's tomb is right there to the right. There's a little church built over it. So that is a, that's very important. Because it answers the question, why didn't he bury Rachel in Hebron where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, where everybody else was buried? Because she died as he was making the trail back from uh, Patamaran, where he'd been with Laban. All right, that's just explaining that in case you didn't know. Verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said, they're my sons whom God has given me here. Bring them to me, Jacob said. Please, I'm a blessing. Now the eyes of Israel were dim for his age, for he could not see. But Jacob, so Joseph brought them near him. He kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. Behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And Joseph removed them from his knees, bowed himself with his face to the earth. I mean, he's prostrate on the ground. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left, toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the hand of head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, this is what he's doing, crossing his hands with the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, 
The angels redeem me from all evil. Bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on. The name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. This is really an indication of Jacob's faith, which has grown. And as the patriarch of the family, he is giving an eternally significant blessing in the language of the Abrahamic covenant to these two boys. He's adopted them into the family as the leader of the clan. He's now giving them the Abrahamic covenant blessing. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, he crossed the hands. It displeased him. He took his father's hands to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's. And Joseph said to his father, now, this, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, you put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. Joseph probably assumed, well, dad can't see very well. He made a mistake. So he's trying to correct that. But Jacob says, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people. He shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. His offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day. By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God made you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. We put Manasseh, excuse me, Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope. And I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow, which he had done in Genesis chapter 34. You've got to go back and look at that. Now, what's he talking about? Jacob, he conquered it from the Amorites. Jacob took ownership of the mountain near Shechem. And in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32, Joseph is buried there. All of this is just explaining to us what's going to happen to all these different people, Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh, and so on. And so, again, it's it's an extraordinary demonstration of the, the faithfulness of God, Jacob's growing faith, his living by the Abrahamic covenant, adopting these two boys into the clan, blessing them with the Abrahamic covenant. And it explains why Ephraim and Manasseh become such significant tribal leaders among the 12 tribes of Israel. So are these verbal blessings published someplace all the other kids can see where they got shuffled in the pecking order? They would be written down. That's correct. And, of course, then they're inscripturated in, in, in the text. This is really important. And it's, you know, in typical families, this is going to create some consternation, some jealousy, some. Especially the kids that aren't there to hear. Yeah, I mean, it's oh, but this. It, yes, but this is this is God's way, and again, you see this. It's a pattern that's been among the covenant leaders, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The firstborn is not the one that receives the blessings. And here again, you see it, and this is there is as far as we can tell, there was no directive from God to Jacob do it this way. But Jacob decided to do it this way. We are assuming with the blessing of God. But nonetheless, um, it's it's. Well, you can see why they would forfeit what they did because what they did chose. That's exactly so, right. I mean, they weren't. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Now, chapter forty-nine. There's a lot of information in that chapter, and in the note packet, if you're if you're interested in in this, on page twenty-nine, I give you a chart. Now it's. You might have to take your bifocals, read a little magnifying glass to read every word on this chart. But what it does is it summarizes. That's why I love the chart, actually. It summarizes each one of the sons. But then what it does is it takes the very census data that's in Deuteronomy and Numbers, how many of the tribes, how many of the citizens of us were in that tribe. And it tells you what happens to each one of the tribes and then historical events or historical leaders associated with one of the tribes, like the tribe of Dan. Samson will come from the tribe of Dan. Um, the, the, the whole idea of uh, the, the blessings of Judah. Why does Judah become so important as a leader? Well, Jesus is ultimately going to come. David is of the tribe of Judah. Solomon is of the tribe of Judah. And that's the reason that's such a neat chart. So, at home, take out your maybe your magnifying glass and read it. It'll be on the quiz next week. Okay? All right. Now, so what I want to do is I want to go through chapter 49, which is a summary of these blessings. 
that Jacob gives to all of his sons. And we've already seen the blessing of Manasseh and Ephraim, but he blesses the sons. Now, I want to make a comment, well, almost all of them. I want to make a comment because it's something significant that's going to happen to each one of these tribes. And Jacob called his sons, said, gather yourself together that I may tell you what will shall happen to you in the days to come. And that does not necessarily mean in the next week. It's in the future. Here's what's going to happen to you, my son, and all, all the descendants of your tribe. This is what's going to happen to you. So this is an incredibly important, um, well, it really is prophecy. And it's obviously God is energizing this. God is, through his spirit, giving Jacob the insight to say what he says about each one of his boys. And it is in the order, <coughs> excuse me, in the order in which they were born. <coughs> Reuben, uh, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have prominence. Why? Read chapter 35. Because you went up to your father's bed, you defiled it, he went up to my couch. This is a failure of Reuben's character. He had a character flaw. He failed. He will not lead. He will not be a leader of the tribes. He should have been because he was the firstborn, but he had a character flaw. Number two, he grouped Simeon and Levi together. Are my brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Why does he say that? Read chapter 34. When they avenged the rape of their sister Dinah. Do you remember that? A brutal, brutal revenge. And that's what Jacob is saying. Let my soul come not into their counsel, and my glory do not be joined in their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Ruthless violence, they will not leave. Now, what happens to Simeon and Levi? Simeon is a tiny little grand grant right in the middle of Judah. And what happens over the history of Israel is the little tribe of Simeon basically is dissipated. And it goes out of it, it doesn't go out of existence, but it loses that land grant. That's just what Jacob said. And Levi, the Levites don't get a land grant. They are the priests, and they're dispersed throughout all of Israel. When you read in the book of Joshua, the cities of the Levites, they're dispersed all through the land grants so that every town, every village is less than 10 miles from a Levitical city because they're dispersed because the Levites, among other things, are to teach the law. Number three is Judah, because Simeon are, and Levi are connected together because of what they did in avenging Dinah. Judah. This is extremely important because the New Testament, actually Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament will connect what he says here to Jesus. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub for the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. He will be mighty in battle, using the metaphor of a lion. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him the obedience of the peoples. Verse 10 is a messianic blessing. Old Testament covenants quote this. The New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, quotes this as a reference to Jesus. The ruler's staff between his feet. The ruler tribute tell him all the obedience of the peoples. That's exactly what's going to happen. All people on earth at one day are going to bow before Jesus. In the book of Revelation, he's called the Lion of the tri- Jesus. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Blessed, binding his fall to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Incredibly metaphorical, figures of speech. Verses 11 and 9, the dawn of a new order. When things will be cleansed, things will be prosperous. That's messianic. 
So it's the longest of the promises, it's the longest of the prophetical oracle, prophetic oracles, because it focuses on ultimately Jesus. Because Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, but David, Solomon, and lots of other the kings of Judah, but it's Jesus. So it's an extraordinary prophecy coming from the last days in the mouth of Judah, uh, of Jacob to toward Judah. Do you have any questions about the Judah uh, 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 section? It's, it's so important to connect this to Jesus. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. His land grant borders the Mediterranean Sea way up north. That's why it says that. He shall be a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. That's exactly what happens. Zebulun's land grant goes all the way up to Phoenicia. Ishakar, also up north and along the Sea Galilee, is a strong donkey couching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, that the land was pleasant, bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant at forced labor. <clears throat> this, is, this, is, this is a sad, sad prophecy. Because of where Ishakar is up north around Galilee, they will become servants to the Canaanites. For several generations, the tribe of Ishakar, way up north around the Sea of Galilee, will serve the Canaanites shortly after the conquest and so on. Dan. Dan's a problematic tribe. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent on the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. That's the prayer Jacob is praying for Dan. Well, look, what happens to Dan? Now you have to look at the map, but Dan's land grant was the Mediterranean to the border of Judah. And the Philistines, every time they would attack Judah, they have to go through Dan. And so Dan is being attacked over and over and over again. So in Judges chapter 6, it tells us that the Danites move all the way up north, the very northern borders of the land grant that was given to Israel. And we are now safe. There's a lot that goes on, there's a lot of details in that whole story in the book of, of, of Judges. But the tragedy is, every foreign power that's going to invade Israel has to come from the north. So they keep coming through, Jim. So what they thought they were solving their problem when they moved their land grant from here, way up here, they didn't. They made it worse. And, and the Assyrians, the Canites, the uh, Babylonians, and then later the Persians all come right through the land grant of Dan and basically wipe the Danites from planet. And that's one of the reasons, because they fell into gross idolatry. When you look at the 12 tribes of Israel listed in, Dan, in, in Revelation chapter 7, for the 144,000, 12,000 reach it, Dan is not mentioned. Because of their idolatry, they lose that position. So Jacob prays, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Yahweh, you must rescue Dan and his tribe. Now Gad. This is verse 19. Now remember, Gad, I don't know if you remember, Gad and Reuben and half Manasseh get their land grants on the east side of the Jordan River. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. All these, and that's it. Gad... God, God's going to be a sad, sad situation because they're on the east side of the Jordan River, and they will never be secure. They will constantly be raided. Asher's food shall be rich. He shall yield royal delicacies. Asher, way up north on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, very rich land. Naphtali, also up in that area, is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Beautiful area. It's lush agricultural land. Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. His brothers. Potiphar. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were more agile. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, for there is a shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of my Father, who will help you, the, by the Almighty, who will bless you with the blessings of heaven, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and the womb, blessings of your father. Mighty are the blessings of my parents. 
bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph, on the brow of him who was set apart by his brothers. And that is just reviewing. God was with Joseph, saving him, blessing him. And the blessings that God has given to Joseph will be poured out on Ephraim and Manasseh. And that's what Jacob is saying. And as I already explained, they will get the largest land grants. And the land grants are made at the end of the conquest. And then finally is Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and in the evening dividing the spoil. The Benjamin land grant, Jerusalem is in that land grant. It's a tiny little land grant right next to Judah. So it's, it's Judah, Benjamin, and then Ephraim. But Benjamin's going to be a problem. And when you read, especially in the book of Judges, what happens, they almost go out of existence. There's a lot of reasons for that, but they almost go out of existence. And then the other tribal leaders devise a way to preserve the tribe of Benjamin. And, of course, that will become an important tribe because Saul will be a Benjamite, who is from the tribe of Saul, uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, and a number of other key leaders throughout the history of Israel. Okay, now I kind of hurried through that, but the chart, if you're really interested in looking at that, gives you some of the additional information about what happens to each one of the tribes. But this is a prophetic oracle. A saying about his sons comes true for each and every one of them. Now, I hurried through that, but do you have any questions or comments, or do you want me to comment any more deeply or, or thoroughly about these, or are you kind of with me? With you. I appreciate the reference back to the previous chapters, too. Okay. That's what makes sense of this, I think. All right. Now, what happens here at the end of chapter 49 is, of course, the death of, of Jacob. And these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. And that's really important. It's not a general blessing. It's a specific blessing suitable to each one. And he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, burying with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron Hittite, Hittite to possess his burning place. There they buried Abraham, Sarah his wife, <coughs> Isaac, Rebekah his wife. I buried Leah there, the field and the cave that in it were bought with him Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. <coughs> Again, he asked Joseph, commanded Joseph actually, to bury him in Canaan. Now he's announcing this to all the boys. And very specifically, I want to be buried with Abraham and his wife, Isaac and his wife, my mom and dad, and, and Leah, where she's buried at this point as well. All right. Now, um, chapter 50 is the last chapter. And uh, Joel's prophecy about this class is about to be fulfilled because I think we are going to finish it. But it's a very, very important chapter because Jacob is dead. And the brothers are now afraid that Joseph is going to take his revenge. And instead, Joseph utters some of the most important words in the Bible, which is what I want to stress here as we, as we close out our study of the patriarchs. I'm in chapter 50, verse 1. And Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. That is extremely unusual. As a matter of fact, that is unprecedented because there is no record up to this point of a Jew being embalmed. And I think all of you, I think, are familiar enough. You know, you know what the embalming procedure basically involves? I mean, it's a little bit, not exactly, it's a little bit like what a mortician does today, in a way. But it is, it is part of the practice in ancient Egypt of preserving the body because they believed that this life 
that you live now is preparation for the next life. And when you die, this is the Egyptian mythology, this isn't what the Bible teaches, of course, but when you die, you go on a journey. And that's why, especially in the old kingdom, is when these huge pyramids were built, but the very wealthy would be buried with all these just rooms and rooms and rooms of all their provisions, all their wealth. And usually several hundred servants were killed because when you died, then you would have the servants to serve you. And you would go on a journey. And that journey is to get to and to get to the place where the god Osiris evaluates your deeds and lets you into paradise or condemns you to eternal judgment. And one of the things they would do on that journey is they would read from the Book of the Dead. And that's a very, it's a very well-known book. You go to, to Barnes & Noble, you can buy it if you want. They have copies of it. It's extremely occult, very mystical, I would argue very mnemonic. But that's not why Joseph is doing this. He's having his father embalmed because he's going to take him to Canaan. But he's also going to use this procedure to honor his father. It's very important that the text says that the physicians embalmed uh, uh, Jacob, Israel, because typically in ancient Egypt, the priests did this. The priests of Osiris and the priests of Ra, they're two of the major gods of Egypt, they would do this. How long did it take? Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required. Herodotus, the historian, tells us how they did the embalming. They would take a hook up through the nose and pull the brain matter out. They would then remove all the organs, and the most important organ was the heart, which would be kept in a very special sealed urn, as well as all the other organs. And so when you go to a sarcophagus, what you will find in the sarcophagus is not only the preserved body, but all these organs in special pots. I mean, this is, this is an elaborate procedure. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. That is extremely important because that is suggesting the very esteemed way in which the Egyptians treated the father of Joseph. Joseph's number two man in Egypt. And so Jacob is receiving the honors that were normally preserved for the pharaohs, for the elite aristocratic uh, upper crust of Egyptian society. And so this, this is extraordinary. Jacob is honoring his father in this way. And the Egyptian society is participating in this honor. For 70 days, they wept. It's an official mourning ritualistic procedure. And Jacob is being honored in this way. Verse 4. And when days of weeping for him were past, Jacob spoke, excuse me, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, But now I have found favor in your eyes. Please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I have hewn out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh answered, Go up, bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went off to bury his father with him when all the servants of Pharaoh the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household, under the children and flocks and herds of the left in the land of Joseph. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. Now, let me stop there before we look at verse 10. This, again, this is absolutely extraordinary. This is a huge processional from Memphis, which was the capital city of Egypt at that time, Goshen, they would go up along the Via Maris, the road by the sea, go up along the sea, hug it, and then cut across to Hebron. And I mean, it tells you, the elders, the servants, the leaders, the household of Joseph, and what else? Chariots and horsemen. I mean, this, not exactly, this is a bit like when presidents or heads of state died and had these enormous parades in Washington, D.C. with this is, this is what it's like. Jacob is being honored as the leaders and pharaohs of Egypt were honored. And it's because Joseph is the number two man in Egypt. Verse 10, when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with great and grievous lamentation. They made a mourning of his father for seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites saw the mourning of the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. 
Therefore, the place was called Abel Mezarim, that means mourning for Egypt, the mourning of Egypt, the place of Egypt beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, which is Abraham bought, from the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess the burning place. He buried his father. Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. <clears throat> now, the crucial question. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil that we did to him. That's a realistic expectation. That's not unusual. Now Joseph will take his revenge. Dad's dead. Now Joseph will take his vengeance. <clears throat> so they sent a message to Joseph, saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. Please forgive the transgression of the servants of God to your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers came and fell down before him. Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, meaning your brother, his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little one. He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, I would encourage you to think deeply about verse 20. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So let's, let's take that verse, take it out of that passage, and put it as a sentence. And can we deduce a theological axiom from what Joseph said? Is this a statement? that we can validate through others, study other parts of Scripture, that this is what God do, does. People mean something for evil. God takes that evil and means somehow brings good out of it. Is Joseph affirming the sovereignty and providence of God in a very personal way that you can I can extrapolate from that a principle about life as Christians. Yes. Here Joe has taken a bold move. He shook his head yes, and he verbalized yes. Should I call on him to explain it? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. I, I had all the answers. Yeah, you're good. No, seriously. Why do you think we can do that? I guess I look at it from after or in my own life, I, I see okay. bad things from my own life. Okay. I went through a divorce, for example. Okay. But through that, God brought me to him. Okay. I came to Christ. Sure. Same thing. Um, so I guess I, 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 it's very, very it's easy a very to personal see thing the, for the you. application of that. I think all of us can apply personally. Okay. Good. Good. Would everybody else agree? We can extrapolate from this statement of Joseph a theological principle. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely, yes. Okay. Online, two people verbalize yes. In the room, most guys are shaking their heads yes. Can you think of something very specific in the Bible? It's, it's, it's the epitome of this being applied in the Bible. How about Eve eating the apple? Well, what about the cross? Okay, how about the cross? The cross, and I, I, I'll comment on it because that's not necessarily wrong, but the cross is the perfect example of this. Jesus, Jesus was a victim of monstrous evil. And when you read it in Acts, one of Peter's sermons, Peter talks about this. The evil of Herod, the evil of the Pharaoh, that would be not Herod the Great, but Herod Antipas, who uh, uh, was one of the leaders of Jesus' trial. Pilate, Pharisees. They, he says they were all evil, monstrously evil act. But what did God do out of that? God eternal good out of that. The redemption of the human race. 
And so what Joseph is saying here is, is obviously very personal for him and therefore be personal to the brothers. But from that, we can extrapolate something. That's a principle of God's work in this world. That God takes monstrous evil and brings good out of it. And he defines what the good is, but righteous good out of it. And so what Joseph is saying here is, is a very, very important principle in God's work. And as Fred correctly said, the cross. But even what, even what Joe mentioned with Eve being deceived and eating of the fruit, giving it to her husband and so on, that was a dastardly evil act because it's, it enters the human race into the rebellion that Satan started and they join him. But that leads to the redemptive plan of God. Because what God says, I mean, I don't know how you guys have all thought about that. Every time I read that, I do not think I would respond the way God responds. He curses everything. Everything experiences a result of that. But he makes a promise. It's not going to be like this. I'm going to win you back. Out of the seed of the woman will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. And so God frames his redemptive plan to reconcile this cursed world back to himself. The book of Job is a perfect example of that. I mean, you could just go on and on and on. And so God is the only one who has that ability to take evil and bring good out of that evil. Let me use one illustration. For me, it was a very penetrating demonstration of this. If you've ever been, I don't know, some of you haven't been to Israel, but if you go, ever go to Israel and go to Jerusalem, make sure you go to the Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem. And it's really, it's a very moving, it's a very moving experience. But the way in which they designed that museum, it's on an incline. <clears throat> and it starts, they just reviewed the history of anti-Semitism, starting way back, and walk you through it, logically to the Nazis, et cetera, et cetera. But then what they do is you're getting near the top of this incline. You keep going, what does it do? It shows the birth of the nation of Israel. And out of the birth of the nation of Israel, and it's just all of the history of that. And then as you complete all that, it opens to the hills of Judea. That's a very moving thing to me. Because even the Jews who designed Yad Vashem saw out of this horrible evil of anti-Semitism, especially the enemy of Nazism, came the creation of the state of Israel. And so it's just that they understood that, and that's how they constructed that museum, the Holocaust Museum in, in Israel. So that's kind of all that I want to say about that, because that God meant it for good, you meant it for evil, is an extraordinary statement in the book of Genesis, but it's also for all the Bible. Now, before the book closes, before our study of the patriarchs closes, it talks about the death of Joseph. Now, this would be quite a few decades later. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years old. He lived. His dad, 147, he lived 110. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children, the third generation, children of Machir, sons of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up to the land, this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, Joseph has bought the Abrahamic covenant. He's saying to the descendants of all his brothers, as well as his brothers who are still living, you're going to go into the land. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. End of the book. Go to Exodus chapter 13, verse 19. The children of Israel have been liberated from Egypt. They have experienced, they are about to experience the freedom of being in 430 years of life. They'll start moving down to the Mount Hebron or Mount Horeb, uh, um, Mount Sinai, and go up into the Promised Land 47 years later. But the entire journey, they're carrying the bones of Joseph. During that entire journey from Egypt, so they get to the promised land, and Joseph will be buried on the hillside outside of Shechem, as he was promised by his dad, Jacob. I bought that mountain for you. 
That's where you're going to be buried. Well, you read about that later in the book of Exodus. And so it's just, again, the Bible, excuse me, Genesis ends, the story of the patriarch ends with the Abrahamic covenant. It ends with a promise. Joseph was one of the most powerful men in Egypt's history. It's reasonable and logical that he would be buried in Egypt. I don't want to be buried in Egypt. Take my bones to the promised land. And that's exactly what they do. And so it's that theme. They're in Egypt, but that's not their home. Their birth as a nation in Egypt, they will receive the covenantal promise of Canaan after the wilderness wandering of tragically 40 years. And Joseph's bones are just carried all around the wilderness wandering, but he's buried in the promised land. The Abrahamic covenant, they believed it. Their faith was in the God of the Abrahamic covenant. And the Bible, the, the, the book of Genesis ends with that clear point being made. Joseph believed that. Okay? Joel, your prophecy was fulfilled. You are a prophet. You speak authoritatively for God. That's an amazing thing. <clears throat> knew you could do it. <laughs> now, the interesting thing yes. is that um, Israel is being challenged again. Talib and the squad are questioning the validity oh, of the establishment of, of Israel yeah. and, and try plotting to work against it. Satan, absolutely. Satan will not give up. No, he will not. And you've been, you, I'm sure you've read about in some of these circles in America, this, uh, this uh, divest uh, investments and you know, sell everything, trying to pressure corporations out of any money that's invested in Israel's real companies uh, because of what, what Israel has done in taking the land in 1948 and what they say they're doing to the Palestinians. This is never going to be settled until Jesus comes back. I mean, it's just the most controversial piece of real estate on planet Earth, and it's going to always be the way. Well, I'm going to do something I don't think I've ever done in the history of this class. I'm going to let you out two minutes early. So, I mean, that's almost unprecedented. Maybe in the eyes of God, it's a sin. I don't know, but He's a forgiving God. So I'm going to pray, and then I'll let you go, okay? Father, thank you for our study of the patriarchs. It is, in a way like Romans, it's really important to understand Genesis 12 through 15. It really is the framework for the rest of the Old Testament and really understanding much of the New Testament. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the covenantal name of you. You promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, land, seed, and blessing. And the book of Genesis lays out the framework for that. And then the rest of the Old Testament tells us the story. Jesus, then, is the one who will fulfill completely all those promises. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The scepter never departs because Jesus is the king. The ruling rod because Jesus is the king. So we look forward to your returning, Lord Jesus, for us, that promise that you made, I will come back for you, is a promise we live by. It's the content of our hope. It energizes our faith and keeps us going day after day. Bless these men. Be with them in their jobs, their work, responsibilities, and retirement. What they're doing, we just commit each one to you. May they be strong, strong men of faith who represent you well. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. See you next week, guys. <laughs>